when I remembered things. A couple of years ago, probably about the time I think when I was in the third grade, uh, my parents discovered a way of satisfying uh, birthday presents for me on a regular basis. Uh, every year, I was given a subscription to, I think the title of it was Junior Natural History, a magazine published for young people by the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And uh, three, four years after that, I graduated, if you wish, to their regular magazine. And so I think my folks probably had birthdays for about 10 years or more uh, all taken care of. I didn't have to worry from year to year what to do. Every year there was a subscription. But I suspect that many of you, like we were, uh, raised our kids on Ranger Rick. Anybody know Ranger Rick here? I thought so. There you go. Our speaker this evening was the publisher of Ranger Rick for a number of years, and I think our kids were the benefit of some of his work there for many, many years, and uh, a lot of appreciation there. And uh, several other wildlife-related uh, journals as well, magazines that, that he was involved in. Uh, Larry Schweiger is presently the president and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation. He's been in that position about four years. Uh, he came from Pennsylvania, a similar organization there that was a statewide organization involved in uh, conservation issues there. And he's been involved in a number of, uh, of wildlife conservations, uh, global climate change uh, committees and the like. And he will bring to us this evening uh, a report on some of his activities and his perspectives on global climate change and a good human response to that. Please welcome uh, Larry Schweiger with me. Thank you. Thank you. Is this working? I okay. This one. Uh, it's a, it's a real treat for me to be here this evening. I actually was a member of this organization for a number of years, and moving around somehow or another, I lost uh, contact, and so I'll we'll, fix it. I, we'll get it fixed. Yeah. Um, the, the National Wildlife Federation has about four and a half million members, and uh, we uh, also have state affiliates in every state. I actually was speaking to our state affiliate today, the, uh, the Northwest Steelheaders, and, and uh, that, that's uh, the group that happens to be the state affiliate here in this region. We are uh, an organization that is primarily focused on wildlife and protecting wildlife habitats, but we're also an educational organization. We believe very strongly in investing in children, uh, particularly getting kids back in the outdoors. Our children are losing contact with nature in a very serious way. When I was a kid, we, we grew up as free-ranging kids. You know, we had tree shacks and we had dams in the creek and all sorts of uh, places in the woods we played. And today, kids are not doing that anymore. It's quite dramatic. And so we're concerned about that because they're growing up without a connection to nature that's meaningful and uh, obviously uh, sustainable in the, in the sense that they know how even uh, in a very uh, small ways, know how nature works. Tonight I want to talk about uh, climate change and talk a little, little bit about what we're seeing and, and what we're trying to do about it. Uh, there's something wafting in our air that spells change, uh, significant change, perhaps catastrophic change if we don't act soon to address it. This uh, image, uh, I think uh, probably more than any, says the story well. That line there is when I was born. Uh, 1950, and you can see what's happened to energy 
Uh, I didn't cause all that, but it was... Uh, uh, in my lifetime, we've seen just an, an enormous explosion in, in the use of energy in our world. And uh, we're seeing it uh, now even uh, more rapidly than we did even five years ago. China, for example, uh, puts twice as much carbon in the air as they did seven years ago. Just a staggering number. They're building a new power plant in China every five days. And so when you see the Olympics coming on, they're literally having to shut down half of China in order to get the air quality to the level where the athletes can even compete. It's, it's quite a, a dramatic struggle. We have seen a, an uptick, rather dramatic uptick in temperature in the northern hemisphere. Uh, that same uh, pattern has occurred to carbon dioxide. Uh, and the question has been, is there a linkage? And certainly the science has been around for a long time. When I first got involved in uh, the issue of climate change, we were adding about 0.7 parts per million of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere every year. So the, the, the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere was going up about 0.7 parts per million. Today it's going up about 2.1 parts per million. So three times what we were putting in, that's 25 years. So we're not talking about a, a general progression. We're, we're talking about a rapid change. Uh, from various sources, uh, highways, obviously, power plants, coal-fired plants particularly, uh, are problematic. Dr. James Hansen, uh, who has been involved in this, this issue for many, many years uh, with the Goddard uh, Center uh, at, the, at NASA, uh, has suggested that we should not go over 350 parts per million or we'll start to see some of these so-called positive feedbacks kick in. And I should tell you that this is a chart showing um, the temperature and the um, temperature and the the, uh, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, looking back over 600,000 years from the ice record. I was down in Tennessee this year talking to uh, some editorial writers about this, and I was in Cleveland, Tennessee. And some of you may know the uh, Cleveland, Tennessee Church of God has a lot of influence in that town, and I was chatting with the, the editor, and I, I was telling him about this, this record because he thought that climate change, in fact, was just a, 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 a natural phenomenon, and, and I was trying to explain to him what was going on, and I showed him this chart, and he looked at it, and he said, I said, we have a record that goes back more than 600,000 600, years, and he said, well, that's impossible. And I said, why? He said, because the Earth is only 6,000 years old. And so I had to quick, think quick, and I said, well, I, maybe my decimal points were off a couple points. <laughs> so here, here's where Dr. Hansen says we should not go beyond. Here's where we are today. We're 308, actually 389 today, technically. This shows 387. And here's where we're going over the next 45 years if we stay on the same path we're on today. So you can see the carbon dioxide levels have gone from about 181 parts per million to about 281 parts per million over the last 600,000 years. And in fact, there's some evidence now that goes in about that same pattern over the last million years. So today we are now at beyond 381, so we're more than 100 parts per million higher than any time in the history uh, of, um, of humanity. So we're seeing these uh, rapid increases far beyond uh, what is uh, natural, what is normal, and certainly this is not sustainable. This kind of uh, change uh, is absolutely not sustainable. And what happens when we do th those kind of things? 
Uh, instantly, the IPCC said in 2007, global warming is unequivocal. Temperatures have risen 1.3 degrees Fahrenheit in the last 100 years. Uh, the, the science uh, continues to mount. But the first scientist who actually warned us of this was Savant Arrhenius, who, who said this, we are evaporating our coal mines into the air, adding so much carbon dioxide in the air as to change the transparency of the atmosphere. And he goes on to say, eventually this change might well heat the planet to heights outside of human experience. I share this with you because uh, Savant Arrhenius actually had this published in the Philosophical Magazine in April 1896. So we've known for a long time that putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere uh, is uh, not good for the planet. What we're seeing today, and I want to talk more about this in detail, is that there is, uh, that one of the challenges we have is that the temperature at the equator and the temperature at the poles are changing at, at a different rate. And it's that differential of rate that's causing, uh, first of all, for a lot of people to miss the fact that the planet is warming up. And secondly, it is also, I think, setting stage for some uh, quite dramatic uh, climate changes in terms of the way the weather works, the way our planet functions, the way it cools itself. Uh, the Arctic and Antarctic, to a somewhat lesser degree, are warming uh, much faster than the, uh, the, the equatorial region. Today, the numbers I'm seeing are about 9 degrees uh, um, in the Arctic uh, region. Uh, that, that varies, but up to nine degrees uh, difference between the equator and the Arctic. Uh, we're seeing a number of things happen, and if, until you put it all together, connect the dots, and it makes it a much clearer picture. For example, this is the Wilkins ice sheet uh, that broke off this year from Antarctica. It's um, what, they, uh, what they call buttress ice, but we're, we're seeing a, uh, an increase in melt in Antarctica, particularly in certain regions of Antarctica, 75% uh, increase in melting uh, during the last 10 years uh, in Antarctica. This was uh, last year. Uh, this is the Arctic. This is uh, Arctic sea ice. I happened to be in Greenland last year uh, in, in July and saw some of this uh, taking place. But the Arctic uh, last year broke all kinds of records for ice melt. This is a day-by-day -day ticking of that. Um, but imagine the Arctic ice, when it's fully covered, is about the size of continental United States minus Arizona. Now, imagine that that ice reflects about 80% of the energy back into space. Now, I'll reverse that and, and look for a, an 80 to 85% absorption of that energy into the ocean. So instead of having a giant reflector, uh, nearly the size of the United States. We're now moving to a time when we have an, a, a tremendous absorbing system uh, in the Arctic uh, region. This uh, Arctic uh, meld incidentally shocked all the scientists, and I should tell you all but the, the Brits. The Brits had taken a submarine underneath the Arctic the winter before this, and the submarine was called the Tireless, which is kind of an interesting name for a sub. Uh, you may have read something about it because one of the sailors on board uh, died in an accident uh, during the, the research. But they, um, they determined that the Arctic was actually a lot thinner than was previously believed. They published a paper on it, and they also warned that the Arctic would be gone within 20 years. Well, remember that just four years ago, the IPCC said that the Arctic would be around uh, to 2100. And, in fact, I was quoted in uh, Time magazine about polar bears saying that we 
we fear that we'll lose the polar bear somewhere around 2060 uh, or later. These are the various uh, models that the IPCC has been using, projecting the Arctic melt. This is what's actually going on in the Arctic. It's a, it's a nonlinear uh, event. Uh, there's now a number of other science uh, assessments that are showing that the Arctic, uh, the, the National Center for Snow and Ice Data, for example, has suggested that the Arctic has a 75% chance of being gone in the next five years. Uh, and there, there are some other uh, study. When I say gone, I'm talking about late summer uh, meltout. So we're looking uh, for the Arctic ice to be completely melted out in as short as five years. And suddenly it has a 50-50 chance of being melted out this year. That's the, uh, that's the number that they have put on it. So as we see the Arctic go, uh, so goes the polar bear and a number of other species that have, uh, that have uh, enjoyed that uh, habitat uh, for so long. But more importantly, for humans, I think we're going to see some very dramatic changes that I'll talk about uh, and we're already starting to see some of those happen. Last year, I was in uh, Greenland. This is the, um, the Jacob Shaven uh, fjord that discharges into Disco Bay. These are some icebergs that came off of that, uh, that system. This was at midnight, incidentally. Um, and this is what's happened in, in Greenland over the last uh, several years, 1992, uh, 2002, 2005. The accretion zone, which is shown here in red, is the area where we're seeing a net loss of ice. So the areas where they're still white, we're, we're seeing uh, no net loss of, of snow and ice. But in the uh, red zone, we're seeing uh, quite a dramatic uptick in the ice melt. Last summer when we were there, um, Conrad Steffen, the uh, research scientist from the University of Colorado Boulder, determined that the Greenland was melting 10% faster in 2007 than it did in its record year 2005. When if you were to look at the records 30 years ago, Greenland was not discharging any net water to the ocean. And over that 30-year period, we added one Nile River, two Nile Rivers, and in 2007, we had three Nile Rivers uh, equal, uh, equal to three Nile Rivers of water flowing into the ocean from Greenland. So we've added three new Nile Rivers to the ocean uh, just from this one island full of ice. And this ice, incidentally, is about two miles uh, thick. This is the uh, superglacial lakes, and you can see the um, you can see the accretion zone where the where the sunlight is actually being absorbed. You can see the darkness here. Sunlight's being absorbed on these superglacial lakes, which causes them to melt faster than even the scientists had predicted. They did not realize how fast uh, the superglacial lake uh, formation would actually accelerate the melt. But you can imagine each one of these ponds are are lenses that absorb more energy. So the sunlight has actually been more impactful on Greenland much quicker than the scientists had earlier suggested. This is a, uh, a site. We helicoptered up to this uh, location. There are about 22 of these ice monitoring stations. This scientist was showing us using the electronic technology he had there uh, connected to a satellite where the ice was last year at the same time. So you can see he's about uh, six foot tall, uh, so he lost about five foot of ice over this entire ice sheet uh, in Greenland uh, in 2006. The, um, the superglacial lakes uh, melt out and form these rivers that uh, flow across the, um, the ice sheet in Greenland. And then they find these cracks or molens where these water flows go down inside of the ice and uh, go to the bottom of the ice. And if you 
think about a glass of water. Ice floats on water. So as the water spreads out underneath the ice, it lifts the ice off of the, off the island and starts it to, begins to move. And uh, one ice uh, chunk got my attention. It was four cubic miles, and it moved 42 feet in under a minute. And uh, these ice uh, movements now are quite, uh, quite noticeable. And in fact, if you are tracking them on a Richter scale, you'll see that the, the amount of ice quakes that it ranged between 4.2 and 5.2 have, have doubled since 1993 to 99 because of these massive movements of ice. And they've redoubled again uh, in, in the last uh, few years to 2005. I don't have the most latest uh, data, but it continues to move at a similar pace. We're also seeing um, a tremendous change in the permafrost. Uh, the Siberian tundra, for example, has been, uh, earlier on they suggested it would lose 70 to 80 billion tons of methane as that permafrost in Siberia would thaw out. If you could just imagine your refrigerator at home and you pull the plug out of your refrigerator and allow everything in the refrigerator to decompose, that's what's happening to this vast area of tundra in the North Country. Uh, there's tremendous amounts of organic matter Somewhere about 950 billion tons to a trillion tons of organic matter in this region. Uh, and that organic matter, as it begins to thaw out, begins to decompose. If it decomposes in, in atmosphere, it gives off carbon dioxide. If it decomposes uh, in the absence of, uh, of oxygen, it produces methane. And you can see this study uh, showing the increase in, uh, in melt. Um, another example in Alaska. Dr. Katie Walters, who's um, leading a team of scientists looking at the um, melt of, of permafrost in, in Alaska as well as in Siberia, has published a study showing that that melt is actually going five times the rate that the scientists in the IPCC even two years ago had suggested. So we're now uh, seeing, again, another acceleration. Uh, and so all these vast uh, areas of permafrost are warming up uh, earlier in the season and are staying um, warm later in the season. This is Dr. Katie Walters. She gave me this video. This is on a wetlands. This particular this wetland is, is uh, these are common throughout the region. And what Katie and her uh, colleagues have determined uh, was that these wetlands are forming at rates that are much greater than the science had originally projected because as the tundra melts, it, it subsides. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a karst-like condition, so they sink, and it creates these, these large sinkholes that then fill up with water. And because the water acts as a lens to warm up quicker, it's decomposing the organic matter under these ponds, and they're giving off... Uh, this methane. And so we're seeing methane come off of places where the scientists had earlier predicted would see carbon dioxide. This is, this is what it looks like in the summertime. That's methane coming out of one of these, uh, these uh, waters, uh, bodies of water. And there's a lot of this uh, happening across uh, uh, the North Country. And uh, so as we add this methane to the atmosphere, we're talking about a, a gas that has 20 one to 23 times the heat trapping capacity of carbon dioxide. So we're, we're talking about a gas that has the potential to accelerate uh, the problem. So that, that's another positive feedback. Wildfires are another example of that. Uh, we're seeing wildfires. The Scripps Institute, for example, 
uh, published a study two years ago showing that wildfires have increased by a factor of four in the United States. We have good data here in the United States that we can, we can say some definitive things about it. Um, obviously, we're seeing those fires in California yesterday or two days ago. I was down in, in uh, um, Medford, Connecticut, or Medford, uh, Oregon, and I, I was uh, living in the smoke. So I know in Northern California, they're still dealing with a lot of fires. And uh, we're also seeing uh, that those fires are uh, creating an additional feedback. Uh, last year in the U.S., for example, about 8% of our total carbon loading into the atmosphere from the U.S. was from our forest fires. And that's uh, far beyond uh, what we've seen in the past. We've seen a six-fold increase in the number of acres burned. Uh, Glenn Beck on uh, CNN accuses environmentalists of causing these fires. Yes? Increase over since when? It's over, I'm sorry, over the last 30 years. So the, the Scripps uh, study looks back over a 30-year period, six-fold increase in the number of acres um, consumed. Uh, Glenn Beck has accused environmentalists of causing these fires because we uh, don't let uh, people cut trees, which is actually not true because the science actually shows the areas where we don't cut trees, we have less forest fires. So it's a, it's a compounding uh, issue. But there also is a need to clear out some of the underbrush, and you know, we've supported that at National Life for years. This is a 4 million acre um, tundra fire that I saw in Alaska in 19, or, I'm sorry, 2004. Uh, these tundra fires are actually becoming more uh, prevalent uh, as the tundra warms up, dries out, catches on fire. Boreal forests are also seeing a tremendous uptick in number of fires. And this is North America, so it includes Canada. Uh, it's primarily Canada, I should say. Um, the Russians are also seeing similar things, and they don't have environmentalists over there, at least not legally. Um, and uh, the Russians in 2003 saw uh, 28 million acres burn, which is about the size of my home state of Pennsylvania. We did not hear about it here in the U.S. because we don't care about Russia. We don't cover their news. Uh, but if Pennsylvania burnt down last year, we probably would have read about it in the newspaper. Um, so we're, we're seeing these problems around the world. We're not really talking about them much. Um, this is the, uh, NASA put this together of the number of fires that occurred in 2007. And this goes through the entire year, similar to what we showed you with the Arctic. But you can see the fires in Central Africa, in Australia, Southeast Asia. And then later in the season, you see the fires in Russia uh, burning across the Siberian region. And also the U.S. Uh, and Canada having fires as well. But you can see it's not just a problem uh, here in the U.S. It's a problem worldwide. The data is, is sketchier uh, internationally because in a number of places they don't track it. And certainly some of these fires are natural, some are uh, human-induced, uh, and some are amplified because of climate change. But it's important to recognize that, that fires and climate are linked. Scientists have warned us that they are. Um, the other area of forest that we need to be concerned about is insects. It turns out that one of the most important uh, insecticides is, is cold weather. So really cold weather kills insects and keeps things under control. And what we're seeing, this is uh, British Columbia. I'm actually headed up there next week. They have about, uh, I believe it's around 14 million acres of forest that have died in western Canada as a result of the bark beetles. Uh, I was in Colorado this year. Anybody here from Colorado? Uh, if, you, if you know anything, what's happening in the north, uh, particularly the north-central Colorado around uh, uh, Keystone and places like that. There's about 1.6 million acres of forest in Colorado that have died 
And uh, when I say die, there's about an 80% mortality in those forests. So those are ticking time bombs. Not only did they die from insect disease, but they're also ripe for uh, forest fires. We're also seeing similar things in in, uh, Wyoming and uh, Utah and even um, eastern Oregon and and Washington and elsewhere. Droughts, uh, scientists have warned us for a long time that droughts are going to be increasing and I just want to flag that for you that, you know, while it creates in more intense storms in coastal regions, uh, climate change also tends to dry out uh, interior spaces. The first person who um, warned us about um, the earth warming up, uh, other than Arrhenius' warnings that we may warn up, was actually Rachel Carson. She was seeing in 1950 that the wildlife and fisheries were moving on the planet in very dramatic ways. Rachel worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and she had access to the data. And she published a book called The Sea Around Us. It actually won a Pulitzer Prize, was on the bestseller list for 84 weeks, which is not a bad thing for a science book. I don't know when a science book has done that again. But Rachel um, had one of her chapters serialized before the book was published, and it was published in Vogue magazine. So this is a trivia question. The first magazine uh, in, in the 20th century to do a story on global warming was Vogue. Um, kind of interesting. But anyway, Rachel's uh, book uh, alerted um, a number of scientists, and uh, Roger Ravel, who was then at Harvard, uh, actually, no, he wasn't at Harvard then. He later went to Harvard. Roger was at Scripps Institute, invited Rachel to go out on on a trip with him for four months. He and his colleagues were doing some studies because Rachel thought it was a, a phenomenon that was being stimulated by currents, and Roger wanted to figure that out. Well, Roger later uh, worked um, with other scientists and started the first collection of carbon dioxide in the uh, Big Island in Hawaii. Um, and um, the other thing that Roger did, which was significant, was that he had a student in 1968 in his class who got very interested in what he was talking about, and that student was, was Al Gore. And uh, so, so we can track from Rachel Carson all the way to Al Gore on the interest on climate which is kind of an interesting uh, connection. The, um, the hardiness zones have been changing in the U.S. The, uh, the Department of Agriculture knew this, and yet they, re- they were refusing to publish the data uh, under this particular administration. And uh, so a number of uh, folks with, the, uh, with um, the, the Arbor Day Foundation took the data from the Department of Agriculture and published these and so now we know we have actually changing conditions uh, as a result of climate change. The hardiness zones are clearly moving north and are changing uh, the conditions throughout the region. Wildlife in the balance. Uh, the IPCC report warned that about 20 to 30 percent of the species of fish, wildlife, and plants uh, and other um, uh, natural organisms will be in jeopardy if the temperature goes up by 2.7 degrees uh, centigrade. And to understand that we're already committed to a, almost a two-degree rise in temperature, I said centigrade, I meant Fahrenheit. We're committed already to a two-degree rise in temperature. So we have a very short distance between now and when we start really losing a lot of wildlife. We've already lost uh, uh, some species. Others are, um, are being impacted already. Uh, this is a, a re- I'm sorry that flipped through. This is a, it was a research study done at... Uh, in Minnesota. Scientists have calculated that nature needs to be moving about 18 to 30 feet per day at the rate of climate change. 
So at our current rate of change, all the species need to get up and move and, and move further north. There are already some species that have taken this seriously. Uh, for example, the, um, the opossum, if you go back to the Civil War days, opossums did not occur north of the Mason-Dixon line. That's why the Confederates ate possum and grits and the Yankees did not. Uh, the, they were, the Yankees were really struck by this strange animal that looked like a, looked like a rat and uh, had naked ears and naked tail and naked feet and, uh, and uh, acted like it was dead when you, when you threatened it. Um, and so that species has now moved all the way through my home state of Pennsylvania, all the way through New York State, through New England, and is now moving up towards the, uh, towards the polar region. I should tell you that the possum has been around uh, since the dinosaur age, so we have a pretty good idea that it's going to do fine during the warming time, uh, but other species may not uh, uh, fare so well. So all these species and organisms that are in, in our water, in our, in our lands, need to be moving and changing in order to adapt. Um, and I'll talk more about this a little later on. Changes in stream flow. Historically, we, we can predict that you'll have certain uh, variability in stream flow. Uh, those, those stream flows are changing now as a result of storm intensification, particularly in coastal regions. Uh, here in um, Oregon, for example, they've had a significant uh, run of of high-intensity storms, same thing with Washington State. We also are seeing the early effects of climate on cold water fisheries. The, uh, you can see what's happened in the south for, for uh, trout populations. You can see the vacancies that we've already seen. Most of this area, Pennsylvania and New York, is starting to see some significant loss of trout habitat. And some of this is related to the timber cutting, some is related to uh, mismanagement of waterways, but a lot of it is related to the warming of water as a result of, of climate change. And so just one degree or 1.4 degree temperature change has an enormous impact on cold water fisheries. The EPA has predicted that uh, we may see 50 to 100% loss of cold water fisheries, which are trout and salmon. Uh, and this is their projection uh, in the range of 2050 to 2100. Uh, these numbers incidentally are, should be updated as a result of the way uh, things have been moving forward. The prairie pothole region is the region where most of our waterfowl comes from. And the prairie potholes, in order to stay even with a two-degree rise in temperature, need to see a 30% increase in moisture. And none of the models are predicting that that's going to happen. So in order to, to break even, they need 30% more rain. And so the scientists are warning that up to 90% of existing potholes in uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, and in large parts of Canada uh, will be jeopardized, and we may have some in western Minnesota, uh, but the rest is in, in serious trouble. Coastal flooding uh, towards the end of the 21st century. Projected sea level rises will affect low-lying areas with large populations. The cost of adaptation for this problem alone could be 5 to 10% of the gross national product. Um, and I should suggest to you that the the, these mega-delta regions, particularly in, this, um, in the Southeast Asia and other parts of the world, there are literally over 200 million people living in areas that are two feet or less in sea level. So we have enormous exposure uh, in these regions. Uh, by 2020, 75 million to 250 million people in Africa will suffer water shortages. Residents of Asia's large cities will be at great risk in river uh, and coastal flooding. That's from the IPCC report, direct quote. 200 million uh, Asians are threatened by sea level rises. That's what I mentioned earlier. Millions of people could die from the consequences of climate change. 
And again, that comes from the, the, the warnings of IPCC and others. As a, as a Christian, I believe we all uh, have a moral obligation to respond to the climate crisis. I, I'm, I'm pleased to say that the National Association of Evangelicals, which was mentioned a little bit earlier, and um, the um, National Religious Partnership for the Environment, and uh, the Evangelical Environmental Association, and a number of other organizations are stepping up to the plate and getting very active. I've been working recently with the Christian Coalition and uh, here we have a very conservative organization, and I think there's uh, going to be some announcements coming soon about the coalition. But it's important that Christians, uh, as well as everyone uh, in America, get together. It, this is not a left-wing organ- issue. It's not a right-wing issue. It's a, it's a moral uh, issue. It's about right and wrong. And uh, so it's important that we uh, come together. Americans have been slow to see this problem, and I, I use uh, this critter to... Uh, suggest that we have eyes, but we're not seeing what's happening in the natural world. There's several reasons for that. One, we live in air-conditioned spaces. Two, we're looking at screens most of the time, and we're not in nature. Uh, nature is seeing these changes and responding, uh, but many of us do not get out of doors. This was a cartoon that appeared right after uh, Katrina. Uh, he will not take global warming seriously until it interferes with the TV reception. Uh, unfortunately, there may be a little bit of truth to that. Uh, this is a gentleman who is uh, head of product development at uh, GM. His name's Bob Lutz. He's also vice chairman of GM's board. He said the global warming is a total crock of, you know what, um, new fuel efficiency rules are just stupid. Um, and I, I would suggest to you that there's a consequence for attitudes. And you can see what's happened to General Motors and what's happened to Ford versus Honda and uh, Toyota. The cars that are being built efficiently are, are, are doing well. Those who are, have missed the, the message, who have denied the message, are in fact in trouble. Uh, hybrids and electric cars are beginning to take off. On the good side, uh, Volta's uh, coming along. They've now committed to building an uh, electric car in Detroit, which we can hope uh, is successful. The public's beginning to wake up. Um, I mentioned the Time magazine earlier. Um, there are a number of other indications that the public is finally um, getting it. I want to talk about the fact that it's important for us to remain hopeful. Uh, there's a great urgency to move and to move fast. Um, there are a number of people who have said that we're, we're running out of time. Dr. Hansen, recently I was at an event where he warned us that we have less than 10 years to, to begin to bring down the, the carbon dioxide levels uh, to protect the planet. The head of the IPCC, the fourth study, just a few weeks ago said that we have seven years to get it done. So we have some people warning us that we're running out of time. This is not a long-term issue. It's not something to pass on to our grandchildren. It's something that we need to deal with. We've stopped acid rain. We've cut our air pollution emissions by 50% for conventional uh, emissions. And we, uh, we believe very strongly that we can, we can stop global warming. You know, the really interesting irony today is that we are making huge investments in old technologies to promote more fossil fuels. And, and there's not a person in this industry that will tell you that this is not happening. All the fossil fuels are going up in price. Coal has gone, for example, from $40 under contract. If you go out on the spot market today, you'll pay somewhere between $150 and $300 per ton because the Chinese are buying our coal. And they're going to burn it in all those power plants that they built. 
So we're going to see coal go up, which means our electric rates are going to go up. We're going to see natural gas go up, which it already has, and it's going to continue to go. We're going to see oil go up, as we've seen it. Regardless of whether we drill off the coast or not, I would urge that we don't. But regardless of whether we do, we're going to see dramatic increases in all the fossil fuels. Now, the really good news is that all the renewables are coming down. Uh, For example, uh, silicon chips have gone from $300 down to $51 in a matter of six months. So just as the computers got more sophisticated and cheaper over a a several-year period, according to Moore's Law, so the solar panels are going to become a lot more efficient and a lot cheaper, and they're they're coming down quickly. So if we're betting on our future, where should we be betting? I understand Joe Sheldon is going to be speaking later about this, so I won't steal all of his thunder. But the important thing is that renewable energy is a path to, to cheaper energy, and yet there are literally millions and millions of dollars being spent today by the API. And for those who don't know what API stands for, it's American Petroleum Institute, putting all those ads on television, convincing Americans that oil is going to be around for 45 more years and, uh, and the oil companies are making all these wonderful investments in new technology. And frankly, a lot of it is, is uh, untrue. And it's sad, but they are setting the agenda for Americans. And so now Americans want us to drill, drill, drill. They want to go everywhere to drill because they think that, that that's the solution to high energy prices, when really the solution is wind and solar and geothermal and, and just so many other things we'll talk about. Energy efficiency is another really important uh, secret. We can cut our energy use by 30 to 50% by finding more efficient ways of doing business, having the same benefits at a lower cost. Solar has been suggested for a long time. This is a quote from Thomas Edison, 1931. I'll put my money on the sun and solar energy. What a source of power. I hope we don't have to wait until oil and coal run out before we tackle that. Uh, well, I guess uh, he had it right. Uh, we're, we are waiting till we run out. Solar, we can produce our own energy, and that's the other really exciting thing about solar is we can be uh, operating in a very distributed system. So instead of having these centralized power plants, we can actually distribute power and actually have a much more reliable and sustainable grid, one that's not uh, vulnerable to uh, terrorists and uh, a much more durable grid by having solar distributed over the entire system. Baseload solar, this is the type of solar that we can use to actually baseload. And uh, the reason why we can do that is we can store the energy that's produced off these solar systems. And here's the range of of solar solar thermal that's uh, available, particularly the southwest of the United States. Scientific American not too long ago did a a, a wonderful uh, um, energy plan for America that's showing that you could put these baseload solar units in the desert southwest with a with a high-voltage DC line, you can move it to the east, you can move it to uh, the rest of the country, and uh, we can basically do 50 to 100% of our energy uh, without trashing out the deserts of Arizona. Um, we also have this technology of solar concentrators. These are built, being built in, in Spain. Uh, the Spanish are also talking about building them in Africa and transmitting the energy from Africa to Europe uh, to help the Europeans. Uh, we can produce 30% of our energy from wind. Uh, we can generate uh, energy to charge batteries for our cars. And we can basically transform uh, our, our fossil fuel uh, addiction into a wind and solar 
and geothermal uh, opportunity because there's plenty of places in the U.S. with new technologies, new deep uh, hydrofracking that they can do. There's tremendous opportunities for getting geothermal in many, many regions of the country, and that technology is available today. Uh, we also need a smart grid, uh, not just the power lines to deliver energy from uh, remote places uh, where wind is being produced or solar is being produced to the urban areas, but we also need a smart grid that allows for a connection to the Internet so you can actually regulate energy use and storage in homes. If you had your automobiles attached to your house, your automobile could actually be part of the energy storage system so that when wind is high, it can charge the batteries up using wind. And when, when solar is high, it can, again, dump it into your car batteries. And then during peak loads, when we have these huge spikes, we can pull a little bit of energy out of your car battery and, and actually run the grid with it. So there's tremendous opportunity uh, with a smart grid to solve some of these problems. And in the meantime, we can store... Uh, we, we need to move quickly to learn how to create uh, clean uh, coal, which has been, has been uh, suggested that it's already available. It's not, but we know how to do it, and we can get there uh, in the meantime. This is a photograph of TMI-2 under construction. Uh, I had uh, some experience uh, with that power plant, but we're, we're going to see um, uh, an increase in nuclear power in this country. I think it's uh, rather limited because of the cost, but I think we will see an uptick in the number of solar, uh, nuclear plants built as well for base loading. How do we solve this problem that Hansen talked about, which is that we're over the line? And to me, that's an urgent problem. We need to not just control our future emissions, but actually take carbon out of the air, have a net carbon uh, negative uh, production. Forest are important carbon sinks. We need to change our forest policies, particularly as it relates to old trees, because the older trees are storing more carbon and we're cutting our trees way too young. We also need to protect uh, uh, places. This is the Amazon. I was there this summer. We need to uh, ensure that the Amazon is around for the future. Uh, the timber harvesting in the Amazon is not sustainable, and the Amazon itself is at great risk. We need to make sure that those ecosystems are protected, not just for the incredible biodiversity that they hold, but also because they hold an enormous amount of carbon, and they help to protect us. One of the really exciting things that's out there is putting, I, I call it putting the black back in our soils. At one time in America, when you were to turn over a spade of dirt, you would see the soil was very black. We have burnt the carbon out of our soil through the use of, uh, uh, of chemical fertilizers, and we need to put carbon back in our soils to improve the health of the soils. This is during a drought year of 1995 at Rodell Institute. This is standard corn production. This is high, high carbon storage uh, with the same, uh, same um, corn. So you can see during drought years, the corn actually does better where you have high uh, carbon in the soils. This is a high carbon soil here, 5%. This is low carbon. This is normally what's going on in the U.S. So we can store about 200 million tons of carbon in our soils by using winter cover crops and doing some other creative things, which is about a half ton per acre uh, for all the acres of the U.S., and also, I should say also worldwide, uh, the same thing can happen. And by doing it worldwide, we can actually make uh, places like Africa and other uh, areas much more durable for droughts. Uh, this is using biology versus chem uh, chemistry to improve soils. Um, mycorrhizal fungi, uh, fungi are very, very important. They are the building block to... Uh, produce more uh, nitrogen in the soil and more carbon in the soil. They slow organic matter decomposition. 
uh, and it also allows farmers to cut their total energy use on the farm by 50%. So by using um, plant, plant species with winter cover crops that, that have a mycorrhizal fungal uh, with them, they can actually uh, save money and uh, store carbon. And when we start paying to store carbon, farmers can make money off of this system. The other really exciting thing about the nitrogen buildup in soil is that nitrogen also prevents uh, the runoff of sediments. This is a high nitrogen, I'm sorry, high carbon soil. This is the same quantity of, of low carbon soil. The carbon itself is sticky and it holds the soil together and binds the soil so it doesn't lose sediments. And so the number one water pollutant in America today is agricultural runoff. If we get more carbon in our soils, we'll be able to reduce the amount of runoff quite dramatically. You can see in these, these, uh, these examples. At National Wildlife Federation, we're working to pass a law in Washington. We were working with a number of the lawmakers this year to pass a Climate uh, uh, Security Act, which would have cut our emissions by 70% uh, by 2050. Uh, the, the science is clear that we need to do at least that and probably a lot more. Uh, and we were able to get a vote uh, in, on cloture in the Senate. Um, we got 54 out of 60 that we needed uh, to pass it. But we think next year that we may, uh, with a little help and some tailwind, uh, get that done. We will also have, uh, regardless of which candidate is elected, we'll have candidates that are willing to sign a climate bill. So we'll have a different White House and one that's willing to work. For me, it's a matter of stewardship for our children's world, and it's also a matter of us caring for the legacy that our parents and grandparents uh, passed on to us. We have an obligation, an intergenerational obligation, and I actually think that's, that's an important thing for those of us uh, who are Christians to think about and to be a part of solving. Uh, one of the things that I've been involved with is uh, the we, we Can Solve It campaign. How many people have seen the ads for We Can Solve It? A few people. Um, this is a, a program actually uh, envisioned by Al Gore. Uh, Al's the chair of this thing. I'm, I'm co-chair. And you might ask what a co-chair is. I wanted to be vice chair, and Al said, you don't want to be vice anything. He said, I've had that job. It's no good. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm co-chair. So, um, but we, we've, we've raised money. Uh, Al's done most of the fundraising to uh, get people to work together, and it's really a bipartisan effort. There are four Republicans, including Teddy Roosevelt IV and, and uh, Lee Thomas, former EPA administrator under, under Ronald Reagan. Um, Brent Scrocroft, who was Ronald Reagan's national security advisor, is very concerned about this issue. Uh, so we have a really good bipartisan group, four Democrats, four Republicans, and one independent. I'm the independent. Um, working together to try to bring people to solve this problem. And so that's the message. We're also working with hunters and anglers. We have over 700 uh, organizations, hunter and angler organizations working together to solve that problem. And I should mention that uh, this is David Crockett. You may hear about him or run into him. David used to be the, uh, the mayor of Chattanooga, Tennessee. He's also descended from the original David Crockett, a very avid outdoorsman, and also an evangelical Christian, I should tell you, and has been helpful with the National uh, Religious Partnership and others. And uh, this is uh, Simon Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's great-great-grandson, um, active with us as well. Uh, the students are getting involved in college campuses, and I should tell you, on Christian campuses, we're seeing the same pattern. I'm sure those of you who are in Christian colleges know that that's true. The students understand that their future is hanging in the balance, 
and they're taking a strong stand. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, a good person leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Some have, have narrowly defined that to mean money. Uh, I don't think it's strictly money. I, in fact, think it's, it's much larger than money. It's, it's a value system. It's, it's caring for the world that our kids uh, inherit. And I think that we have an obligation, all of us, to leave uh, that inheritance to our children's children. Um, this is my grandson. This is the uh, one. I have two grandsons now, uh, so I have two very strong reasons to uh, take a stand uh, for uh, fast action for the climate. And I have to tell you that I have a really hard time uh, even speaking the name of my grandsons uh, while I talk about this issue because I, I have a, a deep appreciation for what's going to happen to the world. And uh, it's very difficult for me to even mention their names because I, it just it touches me very deeply. Um, and it's that love of our children and our grandchildren that should really be the driver. They deserve the same kind of world that we have enjoyed and one that uh, I believe that God has given us. Uh, it's ours to care for. And frankly, we're failing in our duty uh, to do that. Um, I, I will stop at this point and ask if there are any questions or comments. Um, thank you. Yes, up in the back. Yeah, wonderful talk. There is a, an elephant in the room, though, that Christians need. Can you get to the mic, please? Give us Operation Overshoot. Could you comment on that? Yeah, I, I think uh, the, the question is, as I understand it, is the population, the human population overshoot. Um, you know, certainly in our lifetime, we've seen a tremendous uh, population surge. Uh, but, you know, 25% of the total carbon is from the U.S. So it's not directly correlated to population, although China has now passed the United States uh, in their uh, contribution. Just, just this past year, they actually emit more uh, carbon than we do. And the head of India about a week ago issued a statement saying that he will not allow his country to produce any more carbon per capita than we do. Uh, so he's benchmarking his carbon emissions on us. So um, uh, that's a pretty frightening thought. If India is going to be emitting as much as we're emitting per, ton, per, per person, uh, we have a, a, a very serious problem. Um, I, I think um, the... the Carbon problem can be solved separate from the population problem, but I, I certainly believe that we need to have a much different attitude about population. And, I, and we've been active at National Wildlife and making sure that uh, internationally, particularly, I think it's so important to educate women. Uh, we've seen where uh, the education of women in some of these developing nations has transformed the number of children that they have. And so I, I would uh, be a strong advocate for investing in the kind of population programs that we can all agree with and, and move along quickly. Uh, I think some of the other uh, more coercive population programs are much more difficult to get accepted and certainly aren't, aren't ethical. I have it on good authority that the ice cream will melt in 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, if you have a question, please make it to one or the other mics. If you're in the middle, I'll hand you this mobile portable mic. But why don't we start here, please? Hi, thank you very much for this talk. Sobering, but good talk. Um, one thing you didn't mention was, um, as I understand it, one of the most major contributors to global warming are these massive livestock factory far 
excuse me, factory farming situations, which unfortunately are growing in popularity even in, 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 in Europe and in other places. They're kind of being exported from the U.S. And, and uh, not only are they inhumane for the animals, but they are a terrible contributor to this problem. And I just wondered if you had any comments on that. I do. Um, I agree with everything you've said. I, 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 one time I worked on the Chesapeake Bay, and, and Purdue had his chicken operations, uh, and I think a lot of the problems with the eastern portion of the Chesapeake Bay are related to the, to the runoff of, of uh, the, the chicken operations. But to take it a step further, the uh, methane production is huge, and that's obviously what causes the large uh, greenhouse gas footprint from, from animals. I think it's uh, there are ways of dealing with that, and and uh, you know they can deal with it in a fairly effective way in a uh, in a in a in a large animal operation. Uh, they are not currently in most places dealing with it. Oh, I understand there's one in Texas that is. Uh, Walter Humphrey, incidentally, who's the donor for that building, uh, has a has a facility out in in uh, in. Uh, uh, in Texas that has a large number of animals and I've encouraged him to sort of change his operations, but he, he's a friend. So, uh, but anyway, the, the, there, there are some things to be done, but I think there's a larger question of how we provi- provide food for so many people and do it in an ethical way and also do it in a way that avoids the uh, methane leakage. They're also working on some food supplements that alter the, uh, uh, the off-gassing from animals directly. And I don't know how far that's gotten, but, uh, there are many ways of doing that, and some people would advocate uh, that we go to um, a vegetarian diet. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the daughter of a beef cattle rancher, and, <coughs> and yet from what I have seen, I really think Christians need to take a strong look at our diet, whether it's sustainable for the world. Um, meat eating at the scale that we do it is not sustainable, and it's contributing to this problem. I really think we need to look yeah, at I, it. Yeah, I think that's – I'm glad you brought it up. I think it's uh, the total amount is is something like 18% uh, is, is is the numbers that I've seen. Uh, buildings, on the other hand, are about 40% of our problem. So if we just invest in dealing with buildings and and uh, animals, we can do a lot uh, to reduce the loads. And incidentally, I should tell you, as you price carbon, one of the first things to go is those those methane producing uh, animal waste uh, facilities. So I think you're going to see a lot of that development. And right. I was raised on a farm, and uh, I understand the farming industry. Uh, that seems very intuitive, the, the black carbon uh, soil. Why has there been a resistance to that, or why isn't that, why isn't that everywhere now? And the second question is, uh, briefly comment on why you're against uh, expanding offshore, uh, further drilling of oil. Okay. Uh, let me deal with the, um, the ag question first. Um, if you look at ag research, a lot of the ag research in this country is funded by uh, the companies that have potential benefit, and there's a lot of a lot of a lot of tilting in that direction. Frankly, Bob Rodell many years ago, almost 50 years ago, saw that and, and took his own money from Prevention Magazine and, and prior to that, uh, Organic Gardening Magazine, where there's two publications, and, and his whole operation uh, was a public and publishing business. He he then took his profits. And invested in the Rodal Institute so that they could do this research in a non-chemical way, and they've been able to demonstrate that in fact, if you build up uh, carbon in your soil, all those other things I talked about uh, happen. And they've got now 17 peer-reviewed studies published by Rodal 
uh, as a result of their work over at least 30-year history. So they've got some really good data, not just in Pennsylvania, but in other locations around the world where they've been doing research. Um, my view about offshore drilling is um, a, a couple of things. One, um, I am very concerned that that the oil industry has not been as responsible as they say they are. I don't know if you noticed this big spill on the Mississippi. Uh, we lived through the Arctic, uh, I'm sorry, the spill in the Cook Inlet in, in Alaska. Uh, National Wildlife actually uh, provided legal support for the, uh, for the villagers, for the, uh, for the fishermen. Uh, Exxon fought that for 19 and a half years. Uh, they, they, the, the fishermen won a suit for $5 billion, which would have actually paid for their losses, not all of them, but some of them. And when it finally got down to the end, after Exxon fought it to the end, the, the fishermen, 20% of them had already died over that period, so they never got compensated. The 80% that did get compensated got $15,000 apiece, and they lost their entire livelihood in uh, much of Cook Inlet. And so I, I don't think the oil companies are being responsible in the way they're dealing with the, the pollution problems they create. I also think that drilling off the coast of California uh, for those who remember the, the, the oil spills of the late 60s, uh, drilling off the coast of California with a fault zone and with all the other challenges they have there is very different than drilling in, um, in, in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so, and, and, and then there's this other matter of whether it's actually going to have an impact. Uh, the, the studies that we've seen, and I've actually looked at the uh, Department of Energy studies on this, show that if you were to develop all the oil that we have left in this country, you will slow the rate of decline, but you will not stop the decline. It, we're not talking about increasing. We produce right now about 3% of the world's oil, and uh, we have the chance, if we drill on all the offshore, drill in the Arctic Refuge, we have a chance of keeping that 3% probably around 2.5%. And there's no guarantee that any of that oil comes to the United States. Most of it, in fact, will go to China and to, to Asia, to these, to these exploding markets, and uh, there's no oil company willing to guarantee that they're, they're, they're uh, willing to do that. And I should also tell you that the offshore development is subsidized by you and I through a, about $36 billion a year uh, oil uh, uh, depletion allowance. So we allow them to accelerate the write-off of everything they put out there and, uh, and, and recapture that in their, in their tax write-down. So we're paying for that. It's, and it's, it's very expensive oil. It's, they can't even drill out there unless the oil prices are over $4 a gallon. So it's not a way to bring down the prices. Everybody admits that. If you look at the federal studies, it's very clear. It's, this is not cheap oil. It's not just sitting out there. But the oil industry has done a great job of convincing America that we have 45 more years of oil, go back to sleep, pretend like everything is fine. They ignore what we're seeing here. We're, they're ignoring all this, this terrible science about what's happening to our planet. I think it's mor morally... Uh, unacceptable that they're, they're doing what they do, and, uh, and so I'm opposed to it. And I, I have to say that Nancy Pelosi yesterday did, did something that was very heroic. She knew she did not have the votes because so many people were writing their lawmakers at the urging of the oil industry, which instantly doesn't disclose. If you watch their ads, they never disclose who they are. They just say API. There's about 95% of the American public that doesn't even know who API is. And they're pushing Americans to call their lawmakers. So if you go into their website, that's what it does. And they actually, they'll actually dial you through. But Nancy Pelosi shut down the Haas yesterday. I mean, she literally adjourned the Haas prematurely because she knew she couldn't keep the votes. 
So my guess is in September, unless something changes in the American mind, the first bill that comes on the floor of the House and the first bill that comes on the floor of the Senate, they're going to pass a drilling bill that will put oil development off the East Coast, off the West Coast, and every other place they can put holes in the in the ocean, they're going to go after it. And uh, I think that you're going to see also rapid development of the Arctic. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're in, a, in a runaway because we've been convinced that that's the solution. If we take those same dollars and invest in new technology, we could be in a much safer, much more stable place, and we could have lower energy because we're distributing our energy cost over new technology. So I'm very much in favor of going to a new technology and away from oil. Thank you. But other than that, I don't have an opinion on offshore oil. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks, we really, uh, one more question. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, thank you for a very interesting talk. The elephant in the room of population did get a mention. If you look at the impact models, there are two other terms that you multiply by. One is energy use per head, and the other one is standard of living. You start running the numbers. Um, we have two billion people who don't have electricity, more than that who don't have water on the planet. We, as Americans, are only 5% of the world's population. We use more than 25% of the world's resource. We need something like three or four times the planet's, Earth's, natural resources yep. to give people a reasonable standard of living globally if we're going to have a population of nine plus. How do we get the message over? If we're going to save 12.5% of the planet for biodiversity, that's called the Amazon, and maintain the system, um, population plus energy and standard of living. The U.S. standard of living is not sustainable, nope. and if there's going to be any equity, we're going to have to make some very major changes. How do you get a message that the U.S. is going to have to make some changes? <laughs> well, um, everything you said I completely agree with. That we're, um, you know, When you look at, at how much of the photosynthetic process we're putting to work for humans, it's quite staggering. I, uh, I think the last number I saw was something like 48%. Um, we are we are basically uh, you know run, a runaway population, and, and certainly in this country, we have done more than our fair share to damage the planet. And I, I you know that's the other moral thing that I didn't talk about is that we have over our lifetime lifetimes we've put so much carbon out there. We have uh, we've caused a, a lot of the problems that others are going to experience. And um, you know my my ethical. Underpinnings tell me that I, you know, we've we've sinned, uh, and we've we've uh, we've hurt other people. Um, I'd like to believe that we can get there by uh, helping people understand this, uh, but I, I have to tell you that there are a lot of voices out there uh, that are on television that spend a lot of money distorting the message so that the American public does not know this, and that's why for me, uh, I'm working really hard to get the Christian Coalition to help carry this message into the churches of America because I think that if we can get uh, the American uh, Christian community to understand what we're doing, to, to, to embrace what we're uh, needing to do to go forward, that we can, we can change the direction of this, uh, this political uh, uh, paralysis that we have in this country over this issue. Uh, and, and I have to remain hopeful and every day wake up knowing that Thaddeus' future is hanging in the balance. And so I, I wake up every day with that uh, understanding that uh, Patrick and Thaddeus are going to be facing a world that's unacceptable. And millions upon millions of other children are going to su suffer that same fate if we don't act now and do our part to turn this thing around. And to me, that, that is the wake-up call.
uh, that I shared tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much.